Welcome back to our third conference this evening. Let's go ahead and begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and of the fruit of thy Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for our sins, and for the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, so far today, we've looked at two things, two obstacles to allowing ourselves to be received by others in merciful love, both shame and comparison. We don't feel worthy. Uh, We have this insecurity. And so we are often focused on what we don't have. And therefore, we stop ourselves from being fully received and loved. So now we're going to look at the third obstacle. What exactly is a third obstacle? And we're going to focus again on the older son. Maybe some of you ladies will say, Father, y'all picked on us last time with the compare and despair. Well, we're coming after the men today. So don't worry, I'm an equal opportunity offender. Um, We saw that the older son was comparing himself and and what he had or he didn't have to the younger son. But if you go back to the passage, notice what the son says before he gives his reasoning, after the father comes out, uh, or after the the father comes out uh, to get him to come in. It says that the young man, before he began to speak, it says, He became angry and refused to enter the house. So this is the third obstacle, and it's the one that is often the most obvious, but it is the one that I believe to be the deadliest. Anger, because unlike shame or unlike comparison, anger can harden the heart and put up some very, very big walls in a way that shame, and I don't think the insecurity that comes from comparison can. Because what happens here, if we look at the passage, the person who is angry refuses to enter the house. The person who's filled with shame doesn't necessarily refuse. The person who compares maybe doesn't even realize that they're doing it. But the person who is angry refuses, refuses to be received, refuses to be loved, refuses to be accepted. And in fact, as we see, will often lash out and become accusatory. It's your fault, Dad. Your fault that you didn't show me love. Your fault that you're treating him better. So we say hateful things, things that ideally we should regret, and often alienate ourselves even further from the people who love us and want to receive us. And so anger, though, as an emotion, is something that is morally neutral. It can be used for good, it can be used for evil. So if you see your child hurt, or you see your family under threat, you are going to want to act in anger. It propels you to work for justice, to protect that which is valuable and that which is good. But what happens is we can 
allow that just anger to settle into our hearts and to become resentment, animosity, a grudge against others. You can also have it an unjust anger that you're offended for something which is really nothing more than your own narcissistic tendencies and it takes hold of the heart. That's the thing. When anger gets into the heart, it's very, very difficult to get rid of it. But that anger becomes wrath. That anger can become hate. We've all seen angry people. We know angry people. In fact, who knows? There may be some very angry people in here. They're angry at themselves. They're angry at their family. They're angry at the world. They're even angry at God. And the roots of this anger run deep and they can come from a number of different sources. But I have found for my time as a priest, the people who have let anger turn into uh, wrath, settled into their hearts, very difficult to convert. Very, very difficult to change these hearts. Not impossible, but the reason is that there's so many walls up against love, against grace, that we don't let it in. And these hearts become ones who refuse to receive love and refuse to even give love. All the more time isolating themselves from love, from grace, and from others. And so as bad as it is that we get angry with others who've hurt us at these perceived or real injustices, the real issue becomes when we are angry with God. If we're going to really think about it, being angry with God is the most irrational and illogical thing. But still it happens. Things don't go our way. We have to endure some tremendous suffering. There's an unanswered prayer. It's perceived like the older son that we're not being treated fairly. And so we get angry with God. Now it's good if we're angry with him that we should be able to admit it. The problem though is so often we let that anger fester and we quit praying. We hate God. We resent the church. We don't like people who believe. We refuse love, even love that comes from God himself. And so the reality is that I've found, besides that sometimes these people who have anger at God, they may have so much deeper issues that need to be resolved, but quite often is people have false expectations of who God is and how God should and ought to operate in their own lives. God didn't treat me fairly. He didn't do this thing I asked for him. He didn't save the person that I loved. He didn't respond to the need that we thought was very valuable and very necessary. So what happens is we have expectations of how we think God should, would, or will act. And what happens is 9.9 .9 times out of 10, God doesn't live up to those expectations because he doesn't have to, A, and because most of the time our expectations are completely unreasonable and completely illogical. But our expectations don't get met so we, like petulant children, get angry. 
angry at the parent who won't let us run with scissors, angry with the parent who doesn't let us have an extra hour to watch TV, angry at the parent who doesn't want us going out late at night. And so the key, least for getting rid of this, is something I've learned recently. You gotta get rid of all your expectations. Because if you have expectations with God, they will be shattered. Instead, we should have an attitude of expectancy, to be expectant, that we expect the Lord to work in our lives. We expect him to shower with his, us with his grace. We don't know how. We also should expect that we're going to face the cross, and things are not going to go our way. So when that does happen, we don't get angry, and we're happy with whatever we receive. I'm not saying that we should expect the worst, but an attitude of expectancy, but not having expectations on how God should act should rectify a lot of the problem. But either way, the roots to our anger can run very, very deep. Who do we see in the older son? The older son is a perceived injustice, that he's not being treated fairly. He's done all this work, and he hasn't gotten anything, but yet his son, his brother, goes out and sins, and he has the party thrown for him. We can maybe see an attitude of the son is trying to win the father's love, that he's going to do A, B, C, D, and E and gain love, when in reality the father loves him for who he is, not for what he does. But I can conjecture that this type of outburst and this type of refusing to go in the house, it didn't just happen like that. There is a history of things in dealing with his father, with his own insecurities and dealing with his brother that led up to this. And I really think it's probably mostly centered around his relationship to his dad and perceived injustices and potentially a lack of affection or emotion that was shown to him. And so there's anger towards the father, his earthly father, and the truth is, when I see anger problems, I see them nine times out of ten in men. I see women who hold a grudge, who cannot let go of things, but wrath is different. I haven't met a lot of wrathful women. The women that I have met, I have gone the other direction really, really, really fast. Really, really fast. The anger of men is different because that anger is often oriented towards their father. A pain, potentially, that their father was very angry and abusive, very distant. They didn't get the love they needed. They were taught to lash out in anger. And so what happens is these angry men... Sometimes it's a white-hot anger. Sometimes it's anger that flares up. There are lots of walls around the heart. And we hold on to our anger and we don't want to let it go. But the fact of the matter is, you can repress it as much as you want, but eventually, like a balloon you hold underwater, it is going to pop up and hit you in the face. The anger from a wrathful man is a lot worse than a balloon hitting you in the face. And so the cycle of violence, the cycle of lashing out, tends to repeat itself. 
the man who had the father who did it to him will do it to his children. And his son's going to repeat it. And it goes on and on and on. What happens is that we see, though, that the anger that the son experiences is rooted in a much deeper wound, a much deeper pain. And as I like to say sometimes when I see those angry men, dude, why don't you take some Neosporin and put it right here? You've got a really big wound and it needs some healing. But, and Christ wants to heal. He wants to bring the healing. And the men that I've seen who've held on to anger, who've let it go, become some of the kindest, gentlest people. But an angry individual, much like a hurt dog, because the angry person is usually a very injured person, will not let the doctor come close. Every time someone comes close, bare their teeth, they lash out, and they attack. And an angry person is going to refuse love, is going to refuse mercy, is going to refuse community and refuse joy, attacking others, insulting others, and even blaming others. Because, of course, the person who's still angry, it's never their fault. It's always someone else's fault. And so what happens is, through this process of putting up walls, of lashing out at people, the person who is riddled with wrath will sit by themselves outside in the cold like a miserable child. And no matter what you do to try to reach them, to bring them into that embrace, they will also always say no. Do we know anybody like this? I know it's a pretty extreme example. I'm sure that we've encountered people at least to some degrees who are like this, who refuse merciful love because of anger, resentment, wrath. And so as I was sort of putting this together over the time that I've reflected on the prodigal son, realized that this parable, and you're going to see more in detail why, and the experience of the anger of the older son makes me think of hell. Now, why do I say that? Well, as a priest, I've encountered a lot of people who struggle with the concept of hell. How could a loving and merciful God, like the Father in the parable, send someone, one of his own children, to hell? Now, the, the answer actually can get pretty complicated theologically, involving human culpability and divine providence. But the catechism, if we read it with a lot of attention, is going to give us an unexpected and, I think, interesting and spot-on answer. It's from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1033, in case you're interested. Listen carefully what the catechism says. To die in mortal sin without repenting and accepting God's merciful love, there you have it, means remaining separated from him forever by our own free choice. This state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God and the blessed 
is called hell. What is that paragraph saying? That paragraph is saying, God doesn't send anybody to hell. We choose to go there ourselves. All God does is essentially ratify that decision. We refuse heaven. Just as the older son refuses to enter into the house to be with the Father and the blessed. I could say, how could anyone do this? That's a great mystery, but I'm going to argue that probably the reason they do it is because of wrath, but particularly wrath that is turned into hate. Anger to wrath, wrath to hate. Hatred of self, hatred of God, hatred of others. And when you hate, you do not want to be around the people that you hate, ultimately don't want to be around yourself. This is the sort of, we could say, the predicament of the older son, even though I won't necessarily go as far to say that he hates, but we can imagine it. The older son refused to enter the house and to come to the party. It was his choice. The father didn't say, I'm mad at you for being a jerk. You stay outside. I'm going to have someone bring a plate out to you. No. He refused to go inside. And the father came out and pleaded, what are you doing, son? We want you to come in the house. But the son still put up a fight. He was angry at this perceived injustice. And I can imagine, maybe even for a moment, the son hated the father. Remember when we were angry at our dads when we were young? I hate you. I hate you for doing this. Now, of course, hopefully he didn't mean it. And that hate can become something very, very real. There is the son refusing to go inside, so filled with anger and resentment that he isolates himself. For me, this is a much more accurate, and I would say a much more chilling and disturbing vision of hell than roasting for eternity in flames with the devil poking you with a hot poker. That's really bad. But what do you have? Not hellfire and brimstone, but the beloved son. The beloved son sitting in the cold and dark, parties at night, refusing out of anger and wrath to enter the bright, warm joy of that house. You can see it. He doesn't want to go in. He doesn't want to have anything to do with it. Angry, wrathful, alone, isolated and completely miserable, but refuses to get out of it. We all know people like this, people who are living hell on earth and in doing so making everybody else's life a hell on earth because of their anger issues. But there's a mysterious truth here. And this is the truth that I think we really kind of want to explore. We can understand this. We've encountered people and we're amazed that this attitude could exist particularly towards God. But we don't know the outcome of the parable. We don't know if the father is able actually to convince the son. The son comes to his senses and enters in the house. But one thing that we do know is that the father never forced the son to come in. 
He didn't send the guards out and saying, you're going to bring my boy inside. You're going to come in here and enjoy this party. Why? Because we know the same father did not force his, older, his younger son to stay. So the younger son goes and says, hey, I want my half of the inheritance. And the father gives it to him. But the little passage says, after a few days, he gathered his belongings and left. You could imagine if the father was going to go out to the older son and plead with him to come in, he probably pleaded with the younger son not to leave. Don't go. You can imagine that younger son was angry too. Maybe some of us in here have experienced that in our own lives and on others. That son who's angry with the father because he doesn't get his way, he's going to pick up his stuff and go. I'm out of here. I'm not coming back. That's a son who was angry, and the father would have pleaded. But here's the key. He didn't force his son to come in. He didn't force this son to stay. The father, God our heavenly father, will never force us to receive his love, his gaze, his embrace. He'll never force us to enter into his house, which as we saw earlier, is actually our house. It's a great mystery that he is going to respect our freedom. He's going to try to convince us. He may knock us on the head a couple of times, but he's never going to force us as much as it hurts his heart, because it does. Now, have you ever thought back some of the things you may have said to your parents when you were young, that you hate them, that you wish they would die, and all those horrible things that we said when our parents literally gave their lives for us. Imagine when we do this, refusing to come into the embrace of the Father, how it hurts his heart. But he doesn't stop loving us. He doesn't say, oh, you're dead to me, you little punk. He's always there waiting for us. But ultimately, it's going to be our choice to say, I don't want to live in the house. I don't want to be a part of this. I don't want to go into heaven. That's why we say hell, whether it be in the next life or in this life, is a state of self-exclusion from heaven, a state of self-exclusion of communion with God and with others, of refusing in wrath and in anger most often and in hate to allow ourselves to be loved. But this choice begins on earth. By the choices we make to allow that hate and that animosity to grow in our hearts, it carries on to the next life. And so if it's true in our relationship with God, our Heavenly Father, it's going to be true in our relationships on earth. Yes, with our earthly parents, but more specifically with our spouses and with our children. Angry people, wrathful people, have walls. They isolate themselves. They refuse to allow themselves to be loved. They sometimes deliberately alienate themselves from their loved ones and hurt others, and as we saw, blame others for their problems. We cannot force them to allow themselves to be received. We can't force them to make them allow us to love them, although we'd like to try. 
And the more we try to break down the walls, the more we try to say, I, you, I'm going to make you love me. I'm going to make you allow yourself to me to love you. The more we try to do that, the more they're going to refuse and the more we will become frustrated. One of the wisest things I ever learned from a priest friend of mine, and I'll share it with you and I've told it before, you can only love someone to the degree that they will allow you to love them. Well, we forget that. Oh, my heart's so filled with love. Uh, you're going to let me love you. No. We can only love someone in the measure to the degree that they are willing to allow us to love them. And if they don't want to receive love, either because they're angry or they're shame or they're just simply a jerk, we can't force it. We try and we try. We ultimately have to put up our hands and say, no, I wish I could, but I can't stop you from being this way. And we got to let them be like the older son, alone and miserable. Like the father, we have got to respect their freedom or else we're going to have a life of hell and frustration. Particularly, we've got to back up if they do consistently lash out and hurt us. Sometimes the greatest expression of love is to set that boundary, to say, I'm going to respect your freedom. Not to abandon the person, to always be waiting for them, to never give up hope, but to set up that boundary and to move on. To do this, to respect another's freedom in their anger and in their hatred can be a very, very difficult thing to do. Particularly for women, particularly for wives and mothers who love their children, who love their husbands. But the husband is angry. The child refuses to go to church, to practice their faith, to live a moral life. And so the tendency is, is I'm going to sit down and reason with them and tell them why they should go to church. I'm going to nag them. I'm going to harass them. I'm going to badger them. And I'm going to send them books and CDs from Father Sibley that they're going to listen to. And they're eventually going to convert. No, they are not. It's only going to make it worse. And in fact, they're probably going to make them more angry when you point out their anger. What we've got to do is let them go. We still pray for them. We still love them. We still wait for them to return like the father waited for the younger son. But we've got to often love them in detachment. They know that we're there. We don't hate them. We're not going to fall into their games or the way that they attack us. We understand where they are coming from. But we've got to let go of control. And to say, I'm giving you over to the Lord. I'm not in control of this. I have hope for your conversion. I have faith that the Lord will do something in your life. I'm not setting false expectations. You could still refuse. But I am going to have that expectant faith that something will change. Because the risk is that if we keep pressing and we let their anger seep into our lives, 
It can make anger and wrath take hold of our hearts. We can lose our peace and can even turn into hatred for them, passive-aggressive revenge-seeking. The most important thing is to be able to maintain our peace. We're going to be disturbed. There are going to be times that we cry because we want to receive with merciful love the other person, but simply they don't want it. Continue praying, continue being present. Every once in a while, if you want to reach out and say, hey, I'm praying for you, I love you, but don't try to grasp, don't try to change, don't try to control. So I'm going to close with, again, another quote from Father Philippe. Actually, it's not so much from Father Philippe, but it's from the same book. And he's talking about and quoting this uh, young Jewish woman named Eddie Hillison, who, uh, with her family, was murdered by the Nazis in World War II. And he talks about how she was so angry and upset at what was happening to her people and was tempted to hate the Germans, to do exactly what they were doing to her people. And but she resisted that temptation. So he writes a little bit about this and then quotes her. So I'm going to give you, he had to say, quoting her, because it's so relevant to this. Far from calling forth bitterness and hate, her, Eddie, Eddie's confrontation with evil was lived as an invitation to react with an abundance of love and to recognize the roots of evil that are in each one of us. That is where we must fight it first. So this is Eddie's quote. E-T-T-Y, not E-D-D-I-E. The filth in others is also in us. And I don't see any other solution, any other solution at all, except to enter into oneself and uproot all that is rotten from our soul. The only lesson that this war has taught us is to look into ourselves and not elsewhere. Again, sort of that, hey, let's not compare ourselves. He continues, she forced herself to recognize that behind every, even a persecutor, was a human being with his own interior void, his own distress, and to apply the gospel precept of love of enemies as well as the word of Paul to the Romans. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. Some would say this is a difficult, unrealistic, and vain attitude, but how else can we stop the spiral of evil? Resentment and hate only feed and propagate evil. Only unconditional love of all humankind can put it into it. So the response to this is going to be that unconditional love. Not a smothering love, but a love that realizes that, as we've said, the person who is hateful and resentful often has much, much deeper wound. They need the healing power of the Lord. They need to be received in merciful love. But the Father will not force it upon them. Jesus never forced his love on anyone. He let Judas do what he had to do. It sorrowed him. He prayed, Father, forgive them for they know what, not what they do when they, the Romans and the Jews, so filled with hate, rejected him. But he conquered that evil by love and we are called to do the same thing. Putting these individuals, these relationships in the hands of the Father, showing them love and praying for the conversion. 
So what I'd like to do, or like you to do for the rest of the evening leading up to tomorrow, is to make an examination of our own hearts. Where is there hate? Where is there anger? And to see if there are the seeds there, something that could develop into something much worse. Or if we can see it in others, we're allowing their anger and resentment to disturb our peace. Realize in prudential decision where we can act and where we can't to give them over to the love of the Father. Either way, to be prayed, to be freed from our desire to control, and also to be healed from whatever seeds of anger, wrath, and hate that might be in our hearts. These three things coming together, shame, comparison, and anger, all lead to what we're going to talk about tomorrow. Probably the most important thing we need to be able to learn is a positive thing, shame, comparison, and anger are not positive, along with merciful love, to be able to truly allow ourselves to be received by the embrace of the Father. Amen. So uh, before we begin the questions, I want to make a little addendum to what we had just talked about, even though the truth is it may seem somewhat anticlimactic. You know, so focus so much on anger, specifically anger is wrath, and how it's very common, particularly in men. Sister, can we reduce the, the mic? If not, I'll just talk loudly, or I'll step really far back. Um, the, in men, so often it comes out uh, in, in attacks and in, in rages and people with their anger. And I realize that that's not always the case. Not only can you get very aggressive behavior, but we also have passive aggressive behavior. Um, it's not men have, women have also, where there is that anger and resentment builds up often as a result of pain too. Most anger comes as a result of pain, not being listened to, of being hurt, rejected. It just comes out in a different way. Um, and we all struggle with aggressiveness, some people passiveness, some people passive aggressiveness, where the aggressive person may be like the, the hungry lion and those nature shows like to watch is just gonna pounce and attack. Well, maybe the passive aggressive, kind of like those little Komodo dragons. They're real small and they kind of nip at the heels of the buffalo, but the Komodo dragons, they're venomous. That gets into their system, and it's really slow. The buffalo ends up getting sick, and after about two or three weeks, ends up dying, and then the Komodo dragons swarm and eat them all totally within the course of about 20 minutes. It's very slow death, but it's still reality. Regardless of how it is, whether it's aggressive or passive-aggressive, whether it's men or it's women, we all deal with anger and some people have a lot of anger deep inside them. Some people you may not be able to see and it pops up in those different ways. It comes from woundedness and we all need healing from Jesus. And we all have our walls or our force fields, we're gonna talk about that tomorrow, that need to come down if we are gonna to try to find true healing to be able to receive and give merciful love. But I just wanted to add that as an addendum uh, to know that there are other forms of anger, not just pure, unadulterated wrath.